the triangular trade. The triangular trade was when the Brit British trading system worked like this. They would take goods from Britain, and they would take it to Africa, and then the goods that they shipped to Africa, then they would take slaves, enslave people, to go to the West Indies. And then from the West Indies, they had got sugar and cotton and tobacco and traded it back to Britain. The triangular trade. By the 1780s, it had been happening and occurring over 200 years the system had been in place. And 80% of the British foreign income was through this trade system. In its peak years, 40,000 people were enslaved per year. Estimates are that 11 million men, women, and children were enslaved in Africa and sent overseas. And in that trip, it is estimated that 1.4 million of those people died in the trip from Africa to the West Indies. In 1780, there was no murmurs, no legislation, no thought about this system ending. It was a sure thing. It was the backbone of the British economy. When things are so dire, what can stir change? Can something, someone, some truth, some God, is there anything that can really change it, that cares to change it, that cares to stir nations or cultures or individual hearts? Today, here is the idea that I want to convey that is from Ezra chapter 1 and 2. If you're going to get any idea, this is it right here. There is a great God that stirs in kings, stirs in adversaries, and can even awaken complacent people so that they will worship him. There is a great God that can stir in kings, adversaries, and even awaken complacent people so they will worship him. Let's look, shall we? Ezra chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. It's printed here in your worship guide. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it. It's after 2 Chronicles. If you've gone to Psalms and Proverbs, you've gone too far. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. I would say it's this much through the Bible. Okay. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
And he has, cha- he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of um, Midrath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shashabazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshabar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each of his own town. They came with Zerubbabel. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Well, if you're just joining us, welcome. I'm glad you're here. We are going through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which really is one book. Uh, Throughout history, they were read as one book. And those are the books we'll be going through this fall until the end of the year. Well, you might not know this Emmaus Road if you've been with us from the very beginning, but we have actually gone halfway through the Old Testament. We have gone through 18 books of the Old Testament as a church since our founding. We've gone through history books in the fall. Ruth and Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings and Esther. Also, we alternate in the fall between wisdom uh, between 
historical books and prophetic books. And the prophetic books we've gone through of the Old Testament are Jonah and Nahum, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos. In the summer, we've studied Old Testament books too, wisdom books. We've gone through Proverbs and Job and Psalms and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. For some of you that didn't go through any of this, and maybe you're new, welcome as we start this new, these new books, Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you weren't there, good news, we can go through this together now. For those of you that have gone through some of these books, or all 18 books, and feel like, oh great, I don't remember much, it's okay. Because I am right now going to go, in two minutes, a quick abbreviation of Israelite history. How does that sound? And if you feel like you are a short-term memory person and forgot it all, bear with me as I go through history for two minutes. Sound good, everybody? Okay, let's do it. So, if you did not know, there are these special people that started with Abraham, the Israelites, which came from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was named Israel. And that is kind of Genesis, right? And then they go down to Egypt, Exodus. And they are enslaved in Egypt for a few hundred years. And they come out of Egypt and they wander in the wilderness. That's Exodus and a lot of the rest of the Pentateuch, those first five books. And then they come into the land, Joshua. That's about 1300 B.C. And then they're in the land and they have these judges that rule these 12 different tribes of Israel. And it goes from some good judges until it gets worse and worse and worse. The book of Judges. And then the people say, we are in trouble. We need a king. So they come to the last judge, Samuel, asking for a king. The book of 1 Samuel. And God gives them a king, Saul, that we find doesn't make very good decisions. And therefore, there comes along David, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, this great king of Israel. And then we see that David um, reigns over what is really the penultimate time of Israel in a time that they reign over other nations and have all of the land. And his son Solomon reigns too after him. And then we see after Solomon, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And there's a fight among the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. And they are divided between the north and the south. Here we have first kings. And then in first kings we have these prophets that talk against the northern kingdom of Israel, Isaiah and Jonah and Amos are the books that we've gone through. And then slowly as the northern kingdom goes further and further away from the Lord, the Assyrians, this nation, attacks the northern kingdom and enslaves and exiles um, the people of the north, these ten tribes in 722 B.C. But the southern kingdom is still around. But then the southern kingdom is running into problems too when we have prophets that speak against them. The ones that we've done there is Jeremiah and Nahum. And then we see that a new empire comes to power, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians come and attack the southern kingdom. And Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, falls. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroy the temple 
and take the people of the southern kingdom into exile in Babylon. We also study the book of Esther that talks about that time that people in Babylon were in exile, and Esther is one of those people in Babylon in that time. There we go. Maybe it was a little bit longer than two minutes, but tried to give it to you the best as I possibly could. But why does all this history matter? When I might say the word history, you might be checked out. Once that word is said, your mind is gone. Why does history matter? And specifically, this history of this people. This history is talking about how the God of the universe enters into our society through these special people to save all of the nations. And as this story unfolds through these people, it ends up involving us. This is our story too that affects us right here, right now, today. Now, the time that we've entered into the story right here in Ezra and Nehemiah, it is a pretty bleak time for Israel. You see, here we've entered a time where, again, the people are in exile in Babylon. The northern kingdom has been gone for 200 years. The southern kingdom has been in this exile for 50 years. The place that God dwells, the temple, has been razed to the ground. The very cultural experiment of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, many people in the world think is over. The Persians now rule. Their God is the true God. Arua Mazda has won the battle. Yahweh and the people of Israel are gone. That is how dire the situation is. Will they continue? Does God really reign? Is the Lord, which is mentioned here in all capitals, which is the word Yahweh, is he the true God of all the nations? Well, if I'm a good communicator and a good pastor, this is where I enter us into the story, right? How I talk about how we are in the most dire time of American history, right? We're living in the same age as they might have been living in Babylonian captivity, right? Somehow I think that might be a little melodramatic, okay? I, I do find it interesting that people think we live in the worst times of history or the worst time a culture has ever lived. I can think of worse times to live in, okay? I can think of worse cultures to live in. But that doesn't seem to have stopped many of us to have a lot of clickbait out there about how bad our time is, right? You know clickbait? The one that tells you that America is ending and then you click on the article to read how it's ending? It's the end of the time. Revolution is coming. Make sure you're outraged. Make sure you're angry. Sometimes I think these articles and these pundits like the outrage. They get more viewers, 
they get more popularity, and they stir us up. The thing is, what can I say about our current age? I can say this. A lot of us are angry. But a lot of us are angry on our couch. We're paralyzed. We're fearful. We do not know what the future holds. And really, it hasn't stirred us up at all. It hasn't stirred up our nation for real change. There's still divisions. There's still depression. There's still drug addiction. There's still hopelessness. What will truly stir us? Let's look at these books. They might give us some clues of how we can be stirred. Okay, let's look first, shall we? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So, we know the Jews are in exile in Babylon. A new empire has come and taken out the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. This new empire is the Persians, and they are led by Cyrus. And Cyrus and the future rulers of Persia are called the King of Kings. They're called the King of Kings because the experiment of the Persians is unlike the Assyrians and the Babylonians of the empires that came before them. The Persians are into pluralism. They'll let the people have their gods. They'll even let them have their lands and their cultures, and they encourage it. They encourage them to go worship your gods, be in your places. In fact, we would love you to worship your gods so that your gods would worship our gods. And in turn, what will happen is as those nations that they are ruling over, as they are kings over those kings, they will give taxes to the Persians and build up their wealth. That is the experiment of the empire of Persia. It's when we get Artaxerxes that comes next and Artaxerxes the second that comes after. Again, the book of Esther is talking about that. If you have no idea what I'm talking about in history, you can watch the movie 300, right? That's the nation that comes against, you know, the 300. The guy with all those chains and things, that's Artaxerxes, right? Comes in on that huge um, chair that's lifted with all those people going before him. Anyway, that might get you to understand what I'm talking about. But what happens now is this. To this king of kings, to this Cyrus, the word of the Lord is fulfilled. The prophet that we studied earlier, Jeremiah. And what is he talking about? That 100 to 150 years before all this, this prophet Jeremiah of the southern kingdom, he said... The day would come when the Babylonian Empire, who exiled the south, would be destroyed. And then, 70 years later, the people would build the temple. 150 years before this is written, that is what Jeremiah predicted. And that's what's happened. Babylon has been destroyed, and then... That's 50 years later, they have been in exile, 
then 20 years on top of that is when the temple is completed. 70 years. And then even before that, before Jeremiah, 150 years before Jeremiah, there was another prophet, Isaiah, who spoke to the northern kingdom. And Isaiah prophesied that there would be a person named Cyrus. And you say, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes, that Jerusalem would be built and the foundation would be laid. So 300 years before this, Isaiah predicted that a person named Cyrus would fulfill God's purposes to rebuild Jerusalem and the foundation would be laid. Some of you might think, why are we even reading this book? Why do you Christians care so much about the Bible? The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. I get it in our age. I understand. But may you take just a brief moment to think, maybe this has something to say. Even the most liberal, I'm not using that in a political way, those that doubt the Bible the most, admit that Isaiah and Jeremiah were written before this. Could there be a God that knows the future, that predicts things, that has written it down and it unfolds in his purposes? If those predictions came true, we've got to think there could be some credibility here in the word of God. We go on, I think the purpose here is that God is showing he is over even the king of kings, Persia. That God can fulfill his promises through these people. I love what Proverbs says. A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs wherever he chooses. The Lord God had the power to stir in the heart Cyrus to fulfill his purposes to bring the people back from Babylon, back to Judah. Well, what was the Lord stirring in Cyrus? For Israel to have an army, to repopulate the land, to make sure they had lots of houses? No, a specific purpose. What was the purpose? To build the Lord a house. You have to understand, the temple, this house that Cyrus is talking about, that he has, God has told him to do, this house was where God dwelt among his people. That is where his presence was. The Ark of the Covenant was his footstool. He would come into the Holy of Holies and dwell with his people to be able to forgive Israel of their sins. And now what has happened? The place that where God dwelt to forgive the sins of Israel, to actually have relationship with them, has been destroyed. It is gone. So the ability for them to have relationship with God, to have forgiveness, to be able to dwell with Him, 
is gone. And it's really the consequence of their sin. God had been predicting it through his prophets for hundreds of years. If you continue to live in rebellion with me, then you will be brought into exile and the temple will be destroyed and has been fulfilled. But now God says, even though you broke the covenant, even though you broke your side of the promise, I will not break my end. I will remain faithful. And that is what God's grand plan is. And he's showing even though the temple is destroyed, he still is powerful. He exists. He still rules over kings. He still has a plan. He still has a way to bring the people out of exile and to build the temple. Some of you might say, this really is God's plan? This is what he's asking to do? To build him a house? That is what the first thing is? Why not let Persia be the center of it all? Why Jerusalem? Why, God, make this small group of people to go back to this insignificant place to build a house? This is really your plan when it seems like the center of the universe is in Babylon? I find it amazing where we draw our attention to what we think is significant. Presidents, sports stars, the Kardashians, right? These are the significant people of our culture that dominate TV shows, that make lots of money, that are the movers and shakers and what we wear and what we say and how we look and what we believe. I'll illustrate it for you, huh? So my girls are going to homecoming. What's the significant thing of homecoming, right? What's the attention of people's eyes on? Maybe your eyes are on this for homecoming. But who's going to be the king or queen, right, of homecoming? It's a big deal, right? And our attention is focused on who's going to win. Maybe yours wasn't because you were just too cool for that, for the popularity contest. But what if, imagine, what if the real significance of homecoming wasn't simply the king or queen, but your first dance with that special person? Maybe you met your spouse at homecoming, I don't know. But imagine that, right? That here you are, homecoming, and the first dance is the most significant thing, not the king or queen. But let's say, in your school, the queen gets to pick the first song. So here it is. The queen comes up, takes her crown, and she gets to pick the first song for the dance for homecoming. And the song that she picks is the first song that you dance with that really significant person. That maybe there is something greater happening than what you see. That maybe it's being orchestrated for something else. All the eyes are on Cyrus. But really, God was using Cyrus for his purposes 
in what the world might think is an insignificant people to make something significant happen. I'll apply it one more way, one more way deeper. The cry of maybe our generation or our culture, maybe for the millennials, let's say, because we love to bash millennials, right? To change our world, to do something big, that you would be the first mover to change the world. I want you to think about this. In our short lifespan, that we could think we have the ability to see the scope of how the world unfolds and what thing we can do to change world and its history is pretty self-righteous and prideful. <laughs> but that's what we're being told. Maybe the greater thing the greater stirring in our hearts is greater than our just ambitions and dreams, but rather the greater stirring is that God would truly restore us to himself. That is the greater thing to be stirred in our hearts rather than our simple ambitions and our dreams. Please hear me. If you heard today my pastor told me to crush my dreams and ambitions. You're not hearing me right. But what I am saying is this. The message that you can do anything you want, you can be ambitious as possible, and you can do any dream, and you can change the world, is what is truly destroying millennials. That pressure and that weight. And in fact, when you actually are stirred by God, he will find out who you really are and how you can really change the world in a way that is greater than anything the world thinks you can do. Okay, so God stirs in Cyrus, this great person, but he also stirs in his people. You can see that, that the same word is used, the stirring, that the people would build the house. And it's led by Zerubbabel. We will see Zerubbabel is mentioned throughout the first six chapters of Ezra. He really takes the dominance of the first chap six chapters of this book. And the stirring has happened in 50,000 of these Israelites in Babylon. The stirring has happened that they will travel 900 miles. Probably will take them four months. And they will go into a desolated city of Jerusalem. And then they will take the task on of rebuilding the temple. That will take them 20 years. And we will see through Ezra lots of opposition. This is a grand task. A culture that has been devastated. That put into exile. That has been brought into poverty. That has been obliterated by three separate nations. Again, what is their task? So first thing, say, God, build a well, build subdivisions, a defense force. No, the first stirring is to build God's house. God stirred them to build his house in his presence. Why that? 
Why start there? That they might know that their strength is based on him being with them. Him being in their midst. I could have spent 10 minutes butchering all these names in chapter 2. You can look at this together. All these houses and all these people that come in. It's beautiful. And I really wish I could have read it. But I probably would have done a bad job reading it and it would have taken too long. So read it yourself if you'd like to. But isn't it significant that the majority of chapter 2, this long, long section of all these names, of all these houses, of people's names and the numbers of them, that God knew their name and each individual person that came back into Jerusalem. That is amazing that God would know their names and their houses and who would come. God stirred in them that they might know the significance is being in his presence. Despite all they had done, all the years of walking away from God, God still said, I want to be with you and restore this relationship with you that happens in the temple. What makes Israel so powerful? This insignificant nation. The Assyrians came and went. The Babylonians came and went. The Persians will come and go. The Greeks will come and go. The Roman Empire will come and go. But this nation of Israel will stand and still have significance today. Why are they significant? Because their armies and their chariots and their numbers know they are significant because the God of the universe dwells among them. Build my house. That is what he stirs them to do. I thought I could get away with this illustration because Erin's down at first steps, so I'll do it now. She doesn't know I'm going to share this. You know the hardest thing I've done in my life is being married. That's the hardest thing I've done. That's probably not a popular thing to say. <laughs> probably I'll tell Erin later, later I said it, right? That's what you stirred me to do, God, to get married. You know, at the beginning when you have the wedding and the ceremony and all those things, it's like, it's just an amazing thing. But then you get into it and you realize how mundane it is. Right? That you realize that, you know, you brush your teeth together now. And that's okay. You know? That you roll over and you have bad breath. That you say harsh words together, that one person gets sick and it's a chore to do things. That kids are crying and you are a mess. You get wrinkles. It just, it just gets really mundane. 20 years of this, and some of you guys have been married longer than that. 20 years. God, you stirred in my heart for this. 
then I'm reminded that next to our bed is, you know, how everyone has different things at their wedding, people to sign things. We have one where we had a thing that people signed things on it, and it still is next to our bed. I love reading it sometimes. A lot of the people that came to our wedding were Christians. And a lot of what they said is, you know, a lot of it is like, let God be the foundation. Let the Lord bring you through. All of these kind of things that these people have been married a long time. That was the advice that they were giving us. The thing that marriage is making me realize, this big thing that I was stirred to do that now I think is mundane, is that in marriage, through all of those things, all those hardships, all those things, I am driven to realize the only way that I can love Aaron well is actually being in the presence of God for him to give me the strength to be patient and gentle and kind and loving. That really the significance of marriage was to drive me more to him to realize if I really want to love someone well that I need to be in his presence to strengthen me to such a task. Could marriage's greatness be in late at night when the kids are crying? Could its greatness be when your wife or spouse is sick? Could its greatness be there because we realize we have to be in the presence of God to be able to love them well? God stirs in Cyrus. He stirs in his people. And then you see that he stirs in even people outside of the Israelite people. This is one of the most interesting things about this passage. That the people of Persia give wealth and money and things to the Israelites to go build the temple. That Cyrus takes the goods that he is now possessed from Babylon that were the Israelites in the temple, and he gives them these things to take back to the temple. People that were not Israelites, people that were not God-fearing, that they give of their things to the Israelites. This echoes the Exodus, right? Out of Egypt, a lot of this echoes the Exodus. God directed Pharaoh right? By hardening his heart. Here we see it's in a different way. God works upon Cyrus by stirring in his heart to free the people. That in Egypt, they gave livestock and riches to the Israelites as they left because they just wanted to have them go. They wanted their own preservation. Just take our things, leave, and don't come back. The Persians give them wealth and goods and these treasuries because, not for that own preservation, but in a different way of preservation, we'll give you these things in the hopes that your empire will be okay, your kingdom will be okay, that you can give to our empire. I love this. The Lord uses different motives of different kingdoms still to fulfill his purposes and his glory. 
That his purpose is not the power and the preservation of these empires, but instead it's his plan for salvation and ultimately for the salvation of all the nations and the extension of his kingdom. Um, I've been doing this long enough uh, that uh, I can start to just have frank conversations about Christianity in the church with people. Some people, I, we quickly can realize there's some disdain towards Christianity. That happened mostly in places where it's become kind of more secular and a lot of people haven't grown up in Christianity. In Colorado, that was the, the case. And there's a lot of these kind of frank conversations about Christianity and their disdain towards Christianity. Here in Wisconsin, it's a little bit different because we kind of live in this Christian culture. Everyone's been baptized, Lutheran or Catholic, or all those kind of things. And I realize that some of the conversations, I have to dig a little bit deeper to have the frank conversation. For some, even in the church, but a lot of people outside the church, their view of Christianity is this. Hey, great. Christianity is a great thing. It's doing good things for society. It might even do good things for my kids. It teaches good morals. It's a good thing to have in the valley. And what I find very interesting, I even see people that don't even believe in Christianity will give money to the church because it's doing a good thing. Who knows, that might be you. Again, God working in his way to build his church. But here's the thing. For you that might think that way or your friends that might think that way. God is not simply after a nice society or good kids. His purpose of his presence is for true reconciliation of all things that comes in relationship with him. Hear this. God can even stir in people that do not believe him to show his favor and to build his church. But my hope is that he would do more than that in your hearts. That he would stir in you to realize if you want true peace in true reconciliation. He needs to work in your heart. He's real. He's present. He works. And he even works when you think this is all just a sham and all a game. It is so much more than that. And one day, the Persians will see that. As their kingdom falls, as their kings come and go, there is one king that still reigns. One day, that will come to you. Your kingdom will come and it will go. Your things will be destroyed. Your houses, your boats, your summer cabins, all those things will come and go. And one day, you will kneel at the King of Kings. I hope that your heart was stirred before that.
I still hope there's this thing in the back of your mind that goes, really? This is God's amazing plan? To go build a religious building with 50,000 people? What's the big deal? God's presence confined to this building and to this temple? Really, that's how great this God is? That he does it in this way? This is where we miss the point. We have to see how this building points forward to a greater plan. You know, in Matthew 1, there's also a big list of names, like in Ezra 2. It's a list of names of those that came before Jesus, the lineage of Jesus. Do you know one of the names in Matthew 1, in the lineage of Jesus? Zerubbabel, the one that led the people to build the house. Zerubbabel was one of the ancestors of Christ to show us from these people will come the King of Kings and the Messiah. From these 50,000 people, from this group, will come the one that will reign over all the earth. And that one Jesus, you know what he said one time in, in the book of John? He said, you know, the day will come where this temple, the one that they built, it will be destroyed. And in three days, I will have it raised again. Hear me. God's presence came to earth and dwelled among us. It is Jesus Christ, the temple. He is the one that was destroyed, and in three days, he rose again, the very presence of God. You want to know God? You want to know him, who he is? He has shown himself in the flesh through Christ. That's how we know God, when we know him. God stirred in a king. He stirred in adversaries. He stirred in his people to fulfill a promise for our salvation. The question is, will we let him stir in us? Will we let his presence be in us. 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? His presence can be with you, in you. That is what he can do in us. 50,000 tired, desolate people 
moving into Judah. And what did they do? I love this part of the end of chapter 2. These poor people, they gave their riches, all they had, to the building of the temple because God had stirred in their heart. Look at what they had. They had little to go on. Look how much more we have. We do not just have a building. We have the Spirit in our hearts. Look how much more He can stir in us to do amazing things. All of us, all of our life, all of our riches, all of our gifts to serve him because he does not just live in a building, that he lives in our hearts. Seventeen eighty four. A 24-year-old British parliamentarian, a playboy who gambled and drank, that lived off the wealth of his parents, and he actually, he just had a seat in parliament because that's what you do when you're rich. You buy a seat to be on the British parliament. And he benefited greatly from the triangular trade. Well, one summer... And what rich people do, he traveled Europe with a friend. And this friend was a Christian. And he told his friend about Jesus. And this young playboy parliamentarian started reading his Bible. And a stirring happened in his heart. And he came to know Jesus Christ. He thought about leaving Parliament, but John Newton, the former slave trader and writer of Amazing Grace, convinced him to stay. And in just over 20 years, this man made it his goal in life to lead the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. And in the early 1800s, William Wilberforce wept. He wept as 80% of the British Empire's wealth, they said, let it be done. And they abolished slavery and the slave trade. The Lord can stir in kings. He can stir in adversaries. He can, can stir in us that his name can be glorified, that we might know that he is the plan for salvation. Will you let him stir in you to know of his presence so that we would rejoice in his kingdom?